So our text is great and our time is short, so we're just going to get down to it. The passage for this morning is John chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 18, I'll give you a second to get there. John chapter 5. Verses 1 to 18. And something that we talked about last week, a helpful way to read your Bible, a helpful tool, a lens by which you can read your Bible that will help you understand it more is to look for strange things. That worked last week. I think it'll work again this week. So as we read through this text, look for strange things. I think that's really going to help us get into the, the tension and the end of the meat of this passage. So listen closely, for this is God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been, he who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is by your Spirit that you penned the words on these page on this page we ask that you would be our guide and our interpreter would you do what you do best and would you make much of Jesus would you soften our minds would you soften our hearts would you work a mighty work and conform us more into the image of Jesus we pray these things in his name amen so I started out by saying, look for strange things. And in the very first paragraph, in the first few verses, there is a very strange thing. 
something is missing. All right, so I'm going to do something that uh, I don't normally do. Um, in white churches, usually like it's just a preacher who talks and nobody talks back. I'm going to break that down and say, now is your chance to talk. What in that first paragraph is not there? What's missing? Anybody? Where's verse 4? There is no verse 4. There's verse 3, which says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. But then we go straight to verse 5. And so verse 4 is not in the ESV. It's not in the NIV, the NASB. If you're like super old school and you're still rocking the King James, like all power to you, you, you might have it in there. But for the rest of us with a more modern version, we do not have verse 4. Seems strange to me. Why is that? I think we get a clue if we look at verse 7. So look at verse 7 with me, which all translations have. It says, The sick man said to him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, if that sentence is all that we have, and it is, if that's the only context that we have for why these invalids are gathered around the pool, that just raises up a lot of questions like, what or who is stirring the water? What's special about the water? Why are these sick people gathered around the water? Why does it seem that there's like a race to get into the water? Like, what, what's the special deal with this water? Okay, and so... The omitted, this mysterious verse 4 that isn't in your Bible. Some of you might have it in in a footnote. It says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed and whatever disease he had. All right, so with that, now verse 7 makes a lot of sense. We know who was stirring the water. It was an angel. We know why they wanted to get down into the water to be healed. Only the first person who got there would be healed. Like Verse 4 is very helpful. It makes sense, but why is it not included? The simple reason is simply because our oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament do not include that verse. And so we don't have the original manuscripts that John wrote, we have copies of copies of copies, and uh, scholars, they can compare these copies together and reconstruct the original. And our oldest ones do not have verse 4. It's not until hundreds of years later do we see verse 4 popping up. And so basically what it seems like is a scribe was copying this down, and he was like, if somebody else were to read this, it wouldn't make much sense. They need a little more context. Let me add this in here, Okay. So verse 4 seems to be a later addition. I think it's correct. I think it's helpful. I think it's true. But simply because it wasn't in the original, it can't be considered part of Scripture. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I wanted to address it at least up front, because if you notice that a verse was missing, like I, I thought that could cause some people to stumble or be distracted. And like just for the whole sermon, like, did I get a misprint? Like, do I need to get my money back? Like, like what's going on? So that's all I'm going to say about that. 
if that kind of thing like really interests you, you can come up to me afterwards. We'll you know, push up our nerdy glasses and hike up our suspenders and get down into the dirty work of some textual criticism, but, but that's all that I want to say about that. But there is another interesting or strange thing going on in the first paragraph. We read that Jesus walked into a multitude of invalids. And we don't know how many a multitude was. It could be a hundred. I tend to think that it's several hundred. And so you just got, you know, for you know, probably about as far as I can see right now, people just laid out who are blind and lame, paralyzed and deaf. This is just a cesspool of infirmity and all the hopelessness and anger that goes with that. And after what we read about last week, what we read this week in chapter 5 surprises me. Because last week, an official came to Jesus and said, my boy is sick, and last week we we studied all about the power of Jesus' words to heal. And he simply said to the man, go, your son will live, And 15 miles away, there were chemical changes in that little boy's body. And he was healed. And so we talked about the the power of God's word to heal. It's it's immediacy. It's, It's not bound by time or space. It can overcome any obstacle to heal. And so in walks Jesus. Last week, he healed one boy. Now he's got hundreds in front of him. He can heal all of them. Last week, he healed one boy and a whole household believed. Now he's got hundreds who are in need of healing, and he can heal them. Like, like think of the revival that would break out if Jesus just spoke and healed all of these people. But instead, Jesus walks into this multitude, into these hundreds of hurting people, And he finds one man. Just one. He finds an invalid who has been that way for 38 years. They have a brief conversation. Jesus heals him. Just him. Just the one. And that seems to be Jesus' MO. Okay, Jesus went to Samaria. Why? Because there was one woman at a well who he needed to have a conversation with. Jesus went into Galilee. Why? Because there was one official and one son who he needed to have an encounter with. And so this week when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem to the multitude, there is one man who the Father has in store for him to meet. Jesus is not interested in crowds. He is interested in individual people. He is more concerned about persons. And the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When the Son went on the mission that the Father had sent him, he did not die for a faceless people. He did not die for just a random number of people that would make up the church. He came, and he sought, and he died for that person, and that person, and you, and you, and me. And every person who has ever confessed 
the name of Jesus and look to him as Lord. Their individual name is engraved on his hands. He is a personal Savior. Jesus is not interested in crowds. He is interested in people, persons, individuals. He is interested in you. He came for you and me. So he's not interested in the crowd. We see that play out in verse 13. We read that in verse 13. The man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Now that shouldn't surprise us, especially after last week where we learned about how much Jesus hated the sign seekers. Out in Galilee, they were sign seekers. They just viewed Jesus as a divine Pez dispenser. Like, what can I get from you, Jesus? Just heal me, do something for me, give something to me. I don't care about who you are. I just, I want what you can give me. Okay, so imagine if Jesus had walked in and healed the man. Like, imagine all the clamoring and the sign seeking that that would have happened among that multitude. So it's not surprising that Jesus gets out of Dodge quick. But what is surprising is that Jesus healed the man at all. Last week, the official, he at least showed a little bit of faith that eventually grew into bigger faith, but it started with little faith. But this man shows nothing. There's no recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no confession of sin. There's no repentance. There's absolutely no evidence of faith. And so, why did Jesus heal this man? Was it just a random work of healing? Was he just feeling in a good humanitarian mood? Did he decide to relieve just a little temporary suffering in the world? I think the answer is no. I think we get that when we look at verse 14. We read that afterward, after the man had gotten up, after he had been healed, gotten up and walked, Jesus found him in the temple. So Jesus talked to him once, but then he sought him out again. He wanted a second conversation. Jesus wasn't done with him. And on this second encounter, Jesus said to him, See you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I said, there's so much to unpack there. We're, We're going to spend a lot of time on that sentence. But first off, this follow-up, this second encounter with Jesus proves that the first encounter, the healing, wasn't random. The healings and the miracles are never meant to be an end in and of themselves. Because if the healing, if the physical healing is all that it is, then that would just be the sign-seeking. People wanting Jesus for what he can do for him. But Jesus healed the man to get his attention. And then he followed up with him with this second conversation and he moved on to what he really wanted to talk about. He had healed his body. Now he wanted his soul. So he gets the man's attention. See, you are well. You haven't walked in 38 years. Now here you are standing in the temple or having a conversation. Now let's get down to business. See, you are well. And the meat of it is sin no more, 
that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus heals, and then he gives a warning. I think you could even read that as a threat. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians, don't think that warnings and threats have any place in the Bible or in the gospel. They think that it should all just be about promises and blessings and love, 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 just positive vibes out of Jesus. That's who he is. But Jesus warns this man. He threatens this man. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And so I think we need to change how we think about and how we view the warnings and the threats of Scripture. It's like if if you're driving up a steep, curvy mountain and you're coming up to a curve that you can't see around and there's a sign that says, warning, don't go around this curve. The road ends. If you go around it, you're going to drop a thousand feet to your death. Like You're not going to hate that warning. You're going to love it. You are going to view it as a means of grace because it keeps you alive. And so God loves us enough to give us warnings and threatenings about things that will harm us. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He warns the man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Which seems to imply that to some degree, some of this man's suffering is because of his sin. Now I want to be crystal clear and ruthlessly biblical, so listen closely. Two things. Not all of suffering is a direct result of sin. Not all suffering is a direct result of sin. In just a few chapters in chapter 9, we're going to come across a blind man. He would have fit in very well with these invalids. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They thought he's blind. He or his parents must have done something to cause that. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It is neither that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sin did not cause that man's blindness. All right, Aaron talked about Job. Job suffered perhaps more than any other character in the Bible. And Job had some crappy friends and even worse counselors. And one of his friends comes up and says, like, Job, like, you're sinning or you're suffering this much, like, it's got to be tied back to some kind of unconfessed sin that you have. But repeatedly throughout the book, God says, no, 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 no. Job is an upright man. I'm doing something bigger here. His suffering is not because of what he did. Look at Jesus. Jesus never sinned. And how did he end up? He was hung on a Roman cross, murdered by the Roman government. The sinless man suffered. So, So there is a biblical category in which suffering is not caused by Sin. That is true, but at the same time, 
the Bible is clear that sin does have consequences. Negative consequences. Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, when they sinned, when they fell, a curse came on mankind and they were kicked out of the garden. In Joshua 7, we read about the sin of Achan and a sin that he performed in secret that nobody else knew about. The next day when the Israelites went out to battle, we're told that because of his sin, 36 men died. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, they lied about their finances. They lied, they sinned. And Luke, the writer of Acts, he puts it pretty gently. He was like, they fell to the ground and breathed their last. They sinned and they died. Sin has negative consequences. So again, to be clear, is all suffering in this world a direct result of sin? No. Sometimes we just experience the negative consequences of living in a broken and fallen world. And so, so I don't want to cause an unnecessary witch hunt for sin in the heart of somebody who is genuinely, truly doing their best to follow and to obey the Lord. But the Bible is also clear, and God loves us enough to warn us that sin does have negative consequences. And we should be thankful for these warnings. We should see them for the expressions of love that they are from God, for the grace that they are, that He loves us enough to tell us when we are hurting ourselves. So Jesus is warning this man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now again, we've talked about looking for strange things. That's kind of been my interpretive lens for the last few weeks. I'm going to keep riding that horse. It seems to really be getting to the meat of this passage. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you is a very strange thing to say to a man who has been in chronic pain for 38 years. There aren't many natural things worse than 38 years of pain. Especially back then, and I mean, we could even consider it now. Like, that's an entire lifetime. Jesus says to a man who has been hurting an invalid, lying in a cesspool, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Which makes me think that the warning that Jesus is giving this man isn't about any suffering or any more suffering that he is going to experience in this lifetime. I think the warning that Jesus is giving to this man is about the suffering that he would experience after this life. And I remember that this man has shown no evidence of faith. No recognition that Jesus is the Messiah, no repentance, no confession. This man is not a Christian. So unfortunately, in the preaching schedule, we had to skip over this part of John 3. But in John 3.19, God's Word says that whoever does not believe, like this man, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so though this man is already suffering because he does not believe, he stands condemned already. 
just a few verses down uh, in chapter 5 and verses 28 and 29, Jesus is talking about the final judgment. And he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so now I think we're starting to get to the heart of this passage. Now I think we're starting to see why Jesus sought out this second encounter, why the first healing wasn't enough. The first healing wasn't about healing. It was about holiness. He healed his body, but he wanted his soul. It's like Jesus was saying to this man, if physical health is all that you're after, if you make an idol out of being healthy and live the rest of your days comfortable and pain-free, but still don't know who I am and confess faith in me, then the suffering that you are experiencing now is only a foretaste of the suffering that you will experience in eternity. What's the only thing worse than 38 years of chronic pain? 38 million years of ages of unending suffering and pain. Which is what this man and every person who does not confess that Christ is Lord will face. It's not a popular thing, but I do think that one of the most loving things that Jesus ever did was to preach about and warn about the dangers of hell and eternal suffering. If you haven't read much about it or heard much about it, I would really recommend going to Luke 16. In that story, we read about Lazarus and a rich man. And while they were alive here on earth, the rich man lived it up in his mansion. He had everything that this world has to offer. And Lazarus was a beggar out on the street. He sat at the man's gate begging for food. But then once they died, on the other side, they switched places. And we see Lazarus, he was cuddled up next to Abraham, just like in the inner circle of heaven. And the rich man was in hell and he was in agony. He said, please just come and dip your finger so that you can quench the thirst. I am in anguish here. Please go tell my brothers, warn them. This is the worst thing imaginable. I don't want to go through this. Revelation 14, 11, when John is writing about the suffering that those who are being judged goes through, he says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It is unending. 38 million, million, millions of years. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus preached. Go read it, and I think you'd be surprised at how often Jesus talked about hell and judgment. And that's what Jesus is doing with this invalid. He was warning him of the judgment that he faces unless he turned from his sins and looked to Jesus by faith. And I think Jesus' emphasis on holiness and on the eternal perspective over and against health 
in the here and now has a lot of implications for us, especially when we think about the disease and the disabled and the hurting and the pain that we see in this world. Now, me, I come from a family of doctors. Mom is an optometrist, sister is a pharmacist, uncle's a doctor, uh, probably like four nurses and other pharmacists. Like, you could run a hospital based on the people around my kitchen table during Thanksgiving, okay? A lot of you are in the medical field, especially the, I don't know where you are, the young 20s, like kind of my demographic in the congregation, half you guys are in med school. Like, and a lot of you are out of med school, you're doctors, you're oncologists, radiologists, and I thank God and I praise God for you. And in terms of meeting physical or spiritual needs in our world, we are going to be a both-and church. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life spiritually, and then he fed 5,000 people physically. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, and then he gave a blind man his sight. Right? Jesus did not have a spiritual-only understanding of Salvation. The, the Greek word for salvation is sozo. And it has connotations of both spiritual and physical. So, so to the medical folks in the room, like, work hard, study hard, be the best doctor, nurse, pharmacist, oncologist, radiologist that you can be. I, I see that as a way of fighting back against the curse that this world is under. It's like shining a gospel light into an area of darkness by being able to alleviate some physical pain. So we are going to be a church that cares about the physical needs of people. Here at RP, we like to say that we always want our affections for Jesus to be growing. We want to love the things that he loves. We want to hate the things that he hates. We also want to emphasize the things that Jesus emphasized. And what Jesus emphasized in this passage and what the Bible emphasizes as a whole more is the importance of caring for souls eternally. And so, yes, go on mission trips, build houses, build schools, do good work, care for the physical needs of people. But if physical needs are only met, people still die. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. The good news is only good news if it gets there in time. And people only spend eternity with Christ if they know about Him and if they hear about Him and if they confess that He is Lord. So, so do, the, do the healings, do the good works, but have the gospel on your lips at all times and let the, the works be pointers to Jesus and who he really is. Okay, so we've dealt a lot. We have dealt with a lot so far. We dealt with a missing verse. We dealt with why did Jesus choose one out of the hundred. We dealt with hell. We dealt with the eternal over the temporal, like it's dense, it's heavy. But we haven't even gotten to the theological elephant in this text. We haven't gotten to what 
really got the people going. And so after Jesus healed this man, at the end of verse 9, after the healing of this man, we read that that day was the Sabbath. Ah, Jesus. Did, ah, did you have to do it on the Sabbath? Like you knew the Jews were watching. You knew the fuss that it would cause. Like you had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Heck, you created the days. You're the author of time. You could do it anytime you wanted. Why did you do it on the Sabbath? And notice that's what the people got angry about. Jesus talked about hell. No pushback. No question. But heal a man on the Sabbath... And the Jews go, uh-uh, Jesus, today's the Sabbath, you can't do that. I don't care that you just did the most incredible thing that I've ever seen, but you broke a rule that I made up. And so we're going to have conflict. And so that's, that's kind of setting the scene. John chapter 5 kind of marks a shift in Jesus' relationship with the Jews and the Pharisees. We'll see that play out. Uh, the, the Jews are just... Before Jesus had their attention, now they hate him because he is working on the Sabbath. We'll see that play out. But why did Jesus perform this healing on the Sabbath? Why did he use the healing of this man to spark a theological controversy with the Jews over the Sabbath? I think there are two reasons. He did it, one, to make a statement and two, to make a promise. A statement and a promise. So number one, Jesus healed on the Sabbath to make a statement. Namely, about who he is. Read verses 16 and 17 with me. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, in those days, it would have been perfectly acceptable to say that God is our Father. Our Father is working. But Jesus said, my Father is working. He's like, I've got a special connection. There's something identical about him and me. He's working, and I'm working. We are connected. I'm different than you. And in the Gospels, Jesus goes out of his way to perform miracles on the Sabbath. If you read through the Gospels, he performed miracles on the Sabbath seven times. He, he, he had an affinity for it. If I could be kind of crass, I kind of think he's like, yeah, this is Sabbath. I'm going to piss off some Pharisees today just because I can. And the reason he does that is to showcase his authority and divinity. And, and, and here's what I think Jesus is saying. In the beginning... When the Father and the Son created the world, they spoke it into existence. It was perfect. It was glorious. It was excellent. It was paradise. Nothing wrong with it. They looked at the people, Adam and Eve, that they had made, and they said, very good. It's kind of like within the Trinity, like fist bumps. Good job. And so on the seventh day, they rested. 
It's not because they were tired. Infinite, eternal, almighty beings don't get tired. And so when the Father and the Son stepped back, when they rested, I think they were just stepping back and enjoying, glorying in what they had made. Look at what we have done. Our creation perfectly expresses who we are. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. In Romans 1, we read that the eternal attributes of God, namely His eternal power and divine nature, are clearly perceived since the beginning of the world in the things that have been made. So on the seventh day, when the Father and Son rested and Sabbathed, they were just enjoying everything that they had done. But then Genesis 3 comes. Adam and Eve sin. Sin and pain and death and brokenness enters the world. Relationships are broken vertically between us and God, between Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. The earth itself is cursed. Romans 8 says that creation itself is groaning for redemption. Which means that for the Father and the Son, that that Sabbath that they had been enjoying, as soon as sin entered the world, that Sabbath was over. In Genesis 3 at the fall, that was kind of like the eighth day, and it was a rough Monday morning. And so what did the Father and the Son do? in response to their Sabbath ending and sin entering the world. They got up and they got back to work. They began to implement the plan of redemption that within the Trinity they had planned for all of eternity. They began to implement their plan to rid the world of the sin and the brokenness that was now in it. They began to restore the world back to paradise. They began to work to get back to that Sabbath rest. And so when Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, I think he's doing it to show his own divinity and authority, saying, I'm God. I created the Sabbath. I can do what I want on it. I was there at the original Sabbath before any of you mucked it up. And so, little Jew, little Pharisee, sit down, because I'm working. I've been working for a long time, and I am working now. Jesus healed on the Sabbath to make a statement about his own divinity, which leads into the second thing. The second reason why Jesus purposely went out of his way to heal on the Sabbath was to make a promise. A promise that he will deliver that he will accomplish the mission for which the Father sent him into the world, which was to redeem the world back to himself and get us, the world, and the universe back to that Sabbath. So when Jesus does those healings, I think that's just a little foretaste of what heaven and that eternal Sabbath are going to be like. The blind will see, the lame will walk, Cancer will be no more. Alzheimer's will be forgotten. In Revelation, 
21, we, we get a slight picture of heaven and we read that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So whenever we see Jesus doing one of these healings, all he's doing is continuing the work that he and the Father have been doing ever since the fall. He is working to bring us back to that Sabbath, that enjoyment, and that rest with him. So to end this sermon in terms of application, I want to speak to the Christians in the room as well as to the people who are not believers in the room. And to both groups, I want to use the the two-pronged powers that this passage uses. Two things. One is a warning, and one is hope. And so first to the unbeliever, a warning. Jesus went up to a man who had been suffering for 38 years and said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And again, what's worse than 38 years of suffering? 38 million, million, million years of suffering. The wages of sin is death, and those who die without Christ will not be with him in eternity. I know it's hard to hear, but I think it's the most loving thing to say that hell is real. Eternity is a long time. And it is a place of conscious, eternal torment. And Scripture is clear that every knee that does not bow in worship and reverence on this side of death will eventually bow under power and judgment on the final day. So to the unbeliever, be warned. But also to the unbeliever, there is hope. We do have a Savior. His name is Christ. And it is by Christ and by Christ alone that we can be saved. And notice this, notice this. The invalid didn't earn it. All he did was sit there in his sin and his suffering for 38 years. He didn't lift a finger. Jesus sought him out. He didn't just seek him out once. He followed up with him. He sought him out twice. Jesus is the hound of heaven. And Jesus healed him. The sick man. A lot of times we think we have to clean ourselves up, we have to pick ourselves up, and we have to sin a little less, and then God will love us more. Romans 8, Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The only admission test to get into heaven is to admit that you don't belong. To say that I am a sinner. I can't clean myself up. I can't do it. I need Jesus. I need you to come and heal me. One of my favorite hymns has a line that says, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. So hear the offer of free Grace, hear Jesus saying to this invalid and saying to you, not by your own works, not by your own power, but by my word, see you are well. Look to him in faith. There is hope for you. 
And then to the Christians in the room, also a warning and a hope. And the warning is pretty similar. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, if you are a believer, your eternal salvation is secure. He, Christ, has bought you by his blood. He has redeemed you. He has purchased you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I will defend that to my dying breath. But sin still has consequences. And if you view your eternal security and salvation as a license to sin, don't be surprised when you suffer for it. Paul addressed this. He addressed the person who thought, uh, I'm saved, therefore I can do what I want. In Romans 6, Paul says, Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. For Christ has died, he was buried, and he is resurrected, and you are with him. Your old self has died and is buried, and you are now resurrected with Christ. You have been healed. Now go live like the resurrection is true. Again, you didn't earn it. Jesus did it all by his power, but he is then giving you the power to go and sin no more. Live like the resurrection is real. And then for the hope. Aaron mentioned it's been a tough few weeks. I know it is for him and for me and for a lot of people in this room. There's a lot of suffering in this world. A lot of people we know are in pain. A lot of us are in pain. But remember that we know how the story ends. If you are in Christ, the promises of Revelation 21 are for you. And we know that in the new heaven, in the new earth, that we will be returned to that eternal rest. We will be returned to that eternal Sabbath. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. And Jesus' word is better than gold. He said that heaven and earth will pass away before something that he said doesn't come true. And he has given this as a promise. So hold fast to his promises and keep the faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. It's not always an easy word, but we thank you that you love us enough to tell us things that might hurt. You wound us to heal us. And so I ask that for the person in this room that needs wounding, that you would do it. That by your Spirit you would reveal the sin in their lives, that you would prick their conscience, awake them to eternal realities, that they would see the beauty of Christ and can enter into his rest. And I pray for the saints in the room that you would give them endurance, give them strength, help them to persevere. Remember who they are and whose they are, that they are bought by you.
the resurrection is real and that they can live like it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.